When the stud opened, San Francisco was a different kind of San Francisco, and it makes sense that it could have been opened in more of a Gemini spirit of like, this is going to be a place, a crazy place for queers to express themselves and be free, and we're going to have parties. And But now it's sort of like, okay, actually, the city is like a monster, and we need a business sense. We need a fucking plan. It needs that Capricorn energy, um, and its moon is an Aquarius, which is like another iteration of that same energy. It's like a wizened Gemini energy, still super freaky. Gemini would maybe be like, I'm doing this wild fucking thing, and I don't care if it pisses off the community. It's wild, and we're doing it. Whereas Aquarius is like, yes, let's be wild, but let's be let's be wild for the community. So it's more community-oriented. It's less of a wild card, less of a cowboy. Hello, everyone. This is Micah Sigourney, also known as Vivian Forevermore. Welcome to Stud Stories. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in San Francisco. Through stories about the stud, we also talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. We talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. This pod started when the COVID pandemic struck and we had to isolate here in San Francisco. The podcast is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers that love it. Maybe you've never been and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about just another bar? To which I'd say, the stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some legendary performers, such as Etta James, Sylvester, and even Lady Gaga. Today on Stud Stories, we have Michelle T. Michelle T is a podcaster, an author and an all-around queer badass. She's going to introduce herself in just a minute here. But as a heads up, Michelle T will be appearing on Drag Alive, which is the Studs' online monthly drag show. Michelle will be appearing on Saturday, April 10th, and she will be doing a live tarot card reading for the audience. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I sure did. Welcome to Stud Stories Podcast. I am here with special guest Michelle T. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Micah. Thanks for having me on the Stud Podcast. So happy to have you. Um, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Oh, did you just see that cat? I just saw that jump cat. Jump behind me. That was Birthday Rainbow. Um, I can introduce Birthday Rainbow as well. Um, so I'm Michelle T. I'm a queer writer, and I've also had a tarot practice for decades, and uh, because of that, I am now the host and producer of a tarot-centric mystical podcast that's an exclusive on Spotify, and it's called Your Magic. And we also have a newsletter, too, that comes out every week with content that's all about contemporary mysticism. Love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to tell you something that, who knows if it's going to stay in the pod, I want to tell you something that, I don't know if you know this, but... What? In San Francisco, since I've moved here, I feel like I've been haunting Michelle T's San Francisco. And I don't know, I've, I, like, we've, we've, we've been in orbit of each other, but we haven't, I don't think we've ever, like, broed down. Um, and so, like, I got to San Francisco, and my friends had just had a Halloween party where one of them dressed up like you, and I heard... Oh, it, that so, debacle! That was quite a thing that happened. Yeah, I don't remember. I just remember that detail, but I know that there was some kind of drama around it. I have a funny... I mean, I can tell that story is pretty funny, but go on. Well, and then um, Radar, the organization you used to be the executive director, an artistic director of, was my first fiscal sponsor as an artist. Yeah. um, Which was how I met Beth Pickens, who is, Mm -hmm. you know, amazing, wonderful coach, grant writer person. And Mm then I went... Oh, and then there was... On New Year's Day one day, I was in your apartment. Do you remember this? I sure do. You seemed bummed out. I remember you just kind of like sitting on my futon, just sort of like bummed. Okay, this is what I re- I remember going there, being like dead hungover. Like that's this what is, it was. I was so hungover, and I remember yeah. lying on your kitchen floor because the tile was cold. I was like that kind of hungover. <laughs> and I didn't think of it till we booked you on the podcast, and I was like, oh my god, like. I was in, I was at Michelle T's house lying on her kitchen floor. You know what I mean? I just had this moment. And then I was on Sister Spit, which is the tour that you started. Yes. And then your book, oh my gosh, Black Wave or Dark Wave? It's Black Wave. It's Black Wave. 
your book helped me to stop drinking. Oh, God, And then you so sent amazing. me a copy of your tarot book before it came out. So I just feel this, like, weird, like... Like, like, not that, like, I, I just don't know, like, 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 I'm haunting Michelle, like, like, Michelle T has always been in my life here, so I just wanted to share it with you before we... Are you haunting me or am I haunting you? Right, well, Who's yeah. Who's haunting whom? <laughs> and I wanted to be, like, fairy stepmother, godmother or whatever, and I was like, no, it's more of, like... So cute. These paths, I don't know. Well, I think San Francisco is so special like that. I feel like people, you know, I remember before I moved to San Francisco, I was living in Boston and I was just coming out and I was doing zines and and my first zine that kind of I sent out into the world sort of dovetailed with the publication of Maximum Rock and Roll's queer zine issue and so it got reviewed in that and then I learned about all these queer zines and I ordered some and then when I got to San Francisco all the people who had made those queer zines were like living on my street so it's just such an amazing place of people and ideas and and strange kismet connections you know so I lo- it makes so much sense that you are having that relationship with me or my work because I feel like I had that relationship with other people and their right. work you know yeah um so that is so cool and um oh my god that Halloween party <laughs> I wasn't there. It was right. Before. I moved here in January, so it I don't was even. A weird thing where I was just hanging out, and uh, and a bunch of my friends had come from this party where somebody had been dressed as me, and they got they were infuriated by it. I thought it was cute. I okay. didn't care, but they were really upset, and they thought it was like objectifying of me and all this weird shit. But you know what it really was? It was just like this funny moment where. I mean, a lot of things were probably happening, right? San Francisco, always getting more and more gentrified by the day, and you're always aware of that, right? New people coming to town, da-da-da. Right. And, and then, like, my, I think Valencia had come out, and suddenly I was getting attention, and I think that was weird for some of my friends, especially when you're, like, this underground dirtbag. You relate to and identify as a sort of underground dirtbag queer, and then somebody's, like, got their picture in a paper, and you're like, oh, don't you think you're Madonna now, you know? And it's, like, it's still so small beans, but it seems enormous, and people get real weird about it and so there was I think some of that was happening and so my friends overreacted I mean one of my friends was really wasted and I think threw a a beer bottle and then I was hanging out at like this terrible bar because I had a friend I was sober I was hanging out at this bar where like a friend of mine was bartending and then my my friend the drunk person who who threw the bottle showed up sobbing oh my gosh so like this was clearly other things were going on right (laughs) like other things were going on and it was just like this whole thing happened and I was confused I was like what oh no you know like oh sorry people got I don't know you know I didn't know how to feel about it I thought it was cute someone dressed up like me um you know and so my and then hot on the tail of my friend was this like gang that had been there and they they were drunk too and they wanted to fight my friend for throwing the glass bottle so it was this whole thing there's gonna be like a street brawl between these dykes right and then like so the dyke that showed up wanting to like punch my friend was so hot and I was just like and she and she was drunk and so my friend my friend got sort of like tucked in the bar and the bartender locked the door so like nobody could fight each other and then I as like a sober person I was like everyone's drunk <laughs> I'm gonna try and talk everyone down so I just remember trying to talk this hot angry dyke down and we kind of got in a fight and I just was like just let it go dude you know and what's hilarious now is that the hot angry dyke is now sober and like we're friends <laughs> And I didn't realize it. I met them. I re-met them as a sober person who lived in New York. And they were like, hey, I don't think you remember this, but we had, like, almost had a street fight once. And I was like, oh, my God, you were that hot person. Like, they're still hot. They just look different. They have less facial piercings now, as we all do. So that was hilarious. It has nothing to do with the stud. And yet, doesn't it kind of no, energetically? No, it absolutely doesn't. I mean, we're going to be talking about nightlife. And you were, like, at a bar as a sober person. So, I mean, but about the stud, did you, what's your relationship to the stud? Well, okay, so when I moved to San Francisco in 1993, I moved in with my friend Peter Pizzi, and one of the first things he did was he brought me to Club Junk at Paula's Clubhouse. So Paula's Clubhouse was a queer bar um, that had a night called 99 Cent Queer Video Night, where you paid 99 cents to come in and watch you know, DIY queer videos, and then if you hung out, Club Junk happened right afterwards, and you didn't have to pay a cover. You could just be like, I came for the video night. And um, Paula's Clubhouse was on 16th Street. It's now Zeitgeist. Um, oh my gosh. It used to be a queer bar. One of my best memories of first moving to San Francisco was walking past, in this, it was a very warm night, and I was walking up 16th Street, and I heard singing, and I looked into Paula's Clubhouse. The doors were open because it was so hot, and it was Justin Vivian Bond standing on the stage just singing. 
you know, it was just magical. Um, but it shut down pretty quickly after I moved there and junk then got relocated to the stud. And that's how I started going to the stud, like religiously every single week. And my girlfriend was the DJ for junk for a while. So I got to like carry her fucking, you know, milk crates of records in, which was just like super high status, menial shit job to do. You're like, excuse me, gonna bring this milk creative right you know you get to stay after everyone gets kicked out you're there like four in the morning which is awful actually um you know you know how it goes but I was in my 20s I was like this is so glamorous you know um but I went there all the time and in club what I loved about the stud and junk and it wasn't obviously it wasn't just junk it was like the clubs you've done there Micah and other people's clubs and obviously tranny shack but there was always performance it wasn't just a bar with a dance floor there was performance going on and like junk would have like I remember like my my girlfriend when she was the DJ was like a big animal rights person and did a benefit for PETA where I think they gave a piece of the door to PETA and so we all dressed up like lab animals like like and just like and my girlfriend was like an evil mad scientist chasing us and I was like a mouse or something you know but go-go dancing is like a bloody lab rat I don't know so there's that and then there was um I don't remember one time there was just like people just doing like wild BDSM shit like somebody getting like completely mummified in saran wrap with like a little tube for their like a little snorkel kind of sticking out of their mouth or getting like their cheeks pierced with a giant skewer and you just had to pretend to be so worldly like it wasn't a big fucking deal that you were watching this like extreme crazy shit you're like just smoking and drinking a cocktail and being like whatever I've seen people get pierced with bigger needles than that you know (laughs) (laughs) it was wild yeah it was wild to show up like that because I had um to show up into a scene like that because I hit town sort of um you know, I had gone through a lot of trauma and I, I felt like, like I was, I was, I had gone through all this sort of like misogynist trauma and I was, I was ready to, I was like prime bait to be radicalized by really shitty second wave feminism. So I was, I was just sort of like, I don't know, everything's bad, including drag queens. What? It's misogyny, you know, even though I was like, oh, I don't want to believe that. Like I grew up going to drag bars, sneaking into drag bars when I was 15 and I felt like that was my queer community. But then suddenly all this literature was kind of being flung at me by my girlfriend. I was like, I don't know, maybe. I'm wrong about everything and I got to just live on lesbian land and never wear cute clothes again and only listen to Ani DeFranco and so I got to San Francisco and it saved my life because I was on that track to being one of those terrible people and then I couldn't resist the joy and the hot sexiness and the punkness of what I found like at the stud with just like these hot leather dykes fucking like dancing with their shirts off and like people spanking each other in the corner and I'm just like oh my god like did I conjure this out of my psyche this is literally my dream I have to let go of all this bullshit that I've been picking up because it's it's you know it might make a certain logical sense you know in this dark way but it actually makes no sense when confronted with the bright gorgeous like love of like queerness like beautiful human queerness it's like it just it withers you know Mm -hmm. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, I don't care. I just want to get spanked and eat meat again. And I don't know, like, get drunk. And that's what I did for so many years. <laughs> did did Sister Spit ever perform at the stud? Gosh. When you were running it? I don't think it performed at the stud. You know, we started at Blondie's, which is hilarious because it's so gross now. It's like a mart- it became a martini bar quickly after we started doing it there. And then these lovely lesbians who owned the Coco Club, which was a little speakeasy in Soma. Um, I don't know what it is now, um, but it was like a downstairs. You walk downstairs and it was really cute. They were like, oh, we would love to have you guys. And so they brought us in and we really flourished there until they got like shut down or something happened. They couldn't keep up the business. Then we went... Oh, there was this brief, <laughs> the Coco Club was opening. They weren't ready to have us, but I did an interview about how we were going to move there. And then the lady who ran Blondie's read it and was like, what, you're leaving? Well, you're leaving now then. And so she kicked us out. We had nowhere to go for like a month. And so we did it at um, Muff Dive, which was another club that the people who did junk at the stud did. But they didn't do it at the stud. They did it at like the something saloon, some place south of Market that has like a SRO hotel above it. I mean, I can't remember. I mean, like, so right. Many, yeah, so anywhere. many places. And I can't remember all their names, but yeah, we did it there. And, um, we did it at the Lexington club sometimes. I don't think we ever did it at the stud. It's interesting because in the past few years, um, 
as Sister Spinette's continued, it has been doing the stud every I year. I love like that. the last that's... three years. Like, that's their big show, is that they do it at the stud? I think it's, like, the San Francisco show. Oh, I love that so much. We would do it at uh, the Elbow Room, I think. Yeah. That's where we did, would do it. But I, that's so rad. And it's it, and it's been pretty... I mean, it's been wildly successful each time, obviously. And uh, could I you bet. tell us about Sister Spit in your words? Cause I, yeah. yeah. Uh, I started Sister Spit in the early 90s with Cindy Anderson. Um, and it, you know, it was during a moment when their open mic nights were really popular, but they were so straight and there were so many drunk dudes who like thought they were Bukowski. And it was really fun to go and fight with them if you liked that kind of thing. But... And I did sort of find the other people who liked that and hung out with them. But we recognize, like, this, we're in San Francisco. Like, there's tons of poets, tons of girls, tons of dykes, and they don't really come to these events because they're they're kind of gross. Why don't we start one? So we started Sister Spit, and it was immediately, like, I mean, insane. How many people showed up? How many people signed up on the list? And we did it every week for two years. And that's so funny because I think events are tend to be more monthly now but in that time period open mics were weekly and it was great because it really accelerated your writing practice like i wanted to read something at sister spit every week so i had to have a new piece every week and that's how i wrote my first books you know they were basically the vignettes that i wrote wrote to read at sister spit they just became my memoirs oh wild that's like kind of the drag model because when i started drag soon after I was throwing a weekly party and it was like yeah. that it was just like this constant it's like having an assignment you have to complete even totally. if you're like tired and annoyed and bumped you still have to do it yeah and sometimes it sucks like inevitably uh, you like yeah. read a really shitty poem that you like rushed through you weren't inspired totally. that week or whatever but and it's also good to because if you're doing it weekly you have so much um volume that like failing feels just like part of it it doesn't it's not like the stakes are lower Totally. Yeah, it's really true. And and you hear everybody's doing it. So you hear some people being like, oh, you you know, you you're in the audience also listening or watching and you can be like, wow, you were amazing this week. And then you could be like, because last week you kind of tanked. But right. You were great this week, you know, and so it's like everybody is sort of, you know, having the freedom to be experimental. And then Sister Smith started touring like nationally. <laughs> Yeah, well, we stopped doing the open mic. We kind of got burnt out. And um, in the meantime, I I started playing drums for a couple bands. And one of them went on tour, even though we were horrible and had no business going on tour. We went on tour. And um, it was awful. It was really interesting. I, you know, the the scene that kind of came up around Sister Spit was so, like, loving and supportive. And poets and writers, like, love each other and support each other. And then suddenly I was in this weird, queer, like, indie rock scene. And people were bitches like probably they were actually just like nice and like horribly shy but it came off like nobody talked to each other people seemed rude there was no camaraderie or feeling of community it was very strange and not to mention my the dynamics in my own band were horribly dysfunctional so when I came back from this tour I quit the band I was like I don't want to play music with you guys I don't think I have enough time to do like be in a band and I think I want to focus on writing like that seems like that makes the most sense for me but i had loved going on the tour i love traveling and i don't drive so it was this great way for me to like have somebody else drive me around the country so i said to cindy why don't we i was like you know our tour actually did pretty well considering where we suck and nobody even knows who we are like people who read at sister spit are actually really good you know like what if we could do a tour what if we could bring like eileen miles with us you know marcy blackman had had a book come out like people who actually you know, we we want to be in a van with. So so we tried it and we booked it ourselves. It was completely wild. I mean, we had no credit cards, no cell phones, no internet. We were doing everything. We just did fun. We did two fundraisers a month, you know, to fund it. We bought a van. It was crazy. We were such alcoholics, like, and yet we managed to do it. But what was really funny is that, you know, we had no understanding of ourselves as alcoholics, but our tour was absolutely this completely insane alcoholic tour that we were pulling, you know, like sober people onto or people, you know, people who were sober alcoholics or people who just like weren't alcoholics. They just were normal people. And they were suddenly in this van and were like, what did I sign up for? Like, this is insane because things that were really normal to me in Cine or even fun we're just like horrible to other people, you know, we'd like pull into town and be like, I don't know where we're staying. Like, we're just going to, you know, on the mic be like, who wants to put us up? And some yeah. people would be like, party, we'll put you up. And we're like, cool, there's an after party we, that we can sleep at. And people would be like, but I actually want to sleep. Yeah. And we'd be like, get it together. You're on tour. Yeah. Just like so unforgiving and just like <laughs> shitty. <laughs> 
I owe everyone. Can I just do a group of amends to anyone who's ever come to on a sister spit tour, like on this podcast? Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I really it's so crazy. And then we would be just totally like, how dare you bring weed in the car when we're going into Canada? Do you want us to get arrested? But meanwhile, we're like doing cocaine like all night in New Orleans, like right. pulling in. You know, it's just like what was okay was so confusing. <laughs> But then Sister Spit got relaunched. That's what I eventually got on the tour, which I was mm-hmm. so grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. It got relaunched. You know, this funny thing happened. You know, it disbanded. It kind of fell apart from dysfunction. Um, and then I got sober and eventually so did Cine as well. Um, and I um, I had published a book called Baby Remember My Name, New Queer Writing from People 30 years old and under like I had seen this new crop of people who were like a generation younger than me who were amazing writers and I wanted to help get their work in the world so I did this anthology and then I was like oh cool we should do like a book tour it'd be so fun and I had been touring with the sex workers art show tour and that was a revelation it was incredible to be just be on a tour as a performer and not be running the whole thing and um, also to have it be like professional, <laughs> you know, somebody like who's getting us hotel rooms and we're all getting paid and, you know, getting us shows in schools. So I asked the the person who ran that tour, would you be able to book this book tour and have it be professional like that and comfortable for us? And she said, yeah. And then she was like, what's the chances of calling it Sister Spit? Because then I could really do right. a good job for you guys because that name is still recognizable. And I was like, well, basically... In so many ways, it is Sister Spit. I mean, in one way, Sister Spit was me and Cine and our dynamic. So in that way, it was not. But it was still me. It was definitely the people who would have come on Sister Spit in the 90s had they been around. So I was like, let's try it. And it was great. And it was lovely for it to have a second life that was sober, (laughs) where, you know, it was functional and um, we could just introduce a whole new generation of people to the world. And it helped people. I mean, people got book deals and people got um agents and stuff from coming on the tour so and that i know and then i ended up you know folding it into radar and then when i walked away from radar i basically walked away from sister spit but i was so happy to turn it over again to like another generation and i know now it's like focuses on queer you know people of color artists of color by poc artists and that's awesome and that's not something that as a white person I, i really could have pulled off but it's so important so i love that that's yeah, you know the the destiny, it's destiny. Um, uh, I went on that tour with Miriam Gerba. Yeah, name? Miriam Gerba. Oh, yeah. I always want to say Gerba, who was already <laughs> like an idol of mine, and I I think I just like seen her read at a radar, like at the library or something. Yeah, and I was just like enamored, hypnotized. Her her delivery of her work is so unreal, dry and beautiful, and like, yes, stunning. And so I was on that tour with her and Thomas Page McBee and ah. Jerry Lee and Virgie Tovar. And first of all, it was like such a beautiful feeling. It was my first time on tour and it was like super easy, super chill. Oh, those ones are the best ones. Yeah, oh. and I was like in a period with drinking where like um, during important parts of my life, I wasn't drinking more than like a drink at night. I was like very specifically like, oh, I'm on this tour. I'm not going to be in the van hungover. And Uh I was also like having this resurgence of anxiety in my life. So when I was in the van, I was on Xanax all the time because I have, I have car anxiety. Uh And so I had this like weird opposite experience of just like, I just like slept all day. Oh my God. And it wasn't until like a year ago where Jerry was like, Oh, I was so bummed that you slept that whole tour because, like, we really wanted to hang out with you in the van. And I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> you missed, you really missed, like, 75% of the experience. Exactly. Like, but I was in the van. such an anxious person in cars that I was like, I just can't do this without, like, doping myself up. Yeah. It was a, such a fun tour. And it was the, um, uh, the Women's History A to Z book. Oh, yeah. Rad American Women A Thank to Z. You. Gosh. It was, and it was their book tour that was, like, concurrent with Sister Spit. Yeah. It was a gorgeous thing. I was the only cis guy, and I was definitely the least popular reader on the tour. <laughs> <laughs> like, other people sold merch, Sorry. and I did not sell merch. People were not. But oh, also, man. Michelle, for that tour, I wore a suit every time we performed, because in like my a, brain, I was like, I know I was hired because I'm a drag. I was just like imposter syndroming my way through it. And I was like, oh so, but I'm not doing drag every day. So I wore a suit instead. And then 
one of my poems I always did stepped back from the mic yelling at the room. And <laughs> You're like, I'm just going to be everyone's bad dad. That's going to be my yes. role. I'm just going to go and just fucking wear like intense, like man signifying clothes and like, scream at everybody. I didn't realize what I was doing. And that's like, very funny. Totally. And then when we had a show in like, I think it was Portland, there was all this drama where we were getting called out on Facebook for not having any trans feminine people on the tour. Mm. And you were very, you were, we were talk, you were called and you were like we don't respond to Facebook drama and it was like the nice it was just such a comforting thing and then I'm in Portland yelling at the audience with a suit on and at moment I one moment I stop and I say I bet Michelle T didn't know there'd be a cis dude yelling at her <laughs> you said that, that? Point, yeah I did because <laughs> there, we entered into it thinking we were going to have an antagonizing night because of all the Facebook drama yeah. and then we actually didn't it was a re- the, the people who showed up really wanted to be there right because the people who were upset didn't actually come to the show exactly probably yeah and we had a show in this is me just gossiping now, like somewhere at a college and it was definitely like a college show not in like an auditorium in like a weird common space thing and I wore my suit and I had a Diet Coke and at one point I said <laughs> Oh, sorry, I need a sip of my Coke. My Diet Coke. I am a faggot. And the person who organized it for the college, like the student rep or whatever, got a bunch of upset emails from students who were like, why is this person throwing around the word faggot? That is so upsetting to me, the way that faggot, as as like queers have gotten more sort of mainstream acceptance, suddenly like faggot is this like intense slur and none of us can use it it's really wild i'm like that word is a really in really important like profound part of my like queer vocabulary almost like my identity like dykes and fags dykes and fags i mean yes. it's like i don't even identify as a dyke anymore but i just feel like fag connotes a certain type of sensibility to a gay man you know yep. saying somebody's a gay man as opposed to a fag is really different like fag is very street it's very like jean Genet. it's punk yeah. it's it also speaks maybe to a certain generation certainly a certain sensibility of more radical queer and anti-assimilationist i mean there's yep and for me a, it's really tied to drag too like i'm yes. a faggot who does drag like that right. was like my gender identity was faggot drag queen yeah that was what i was i was i was not a dude. I wasn't a guy. I was a faggot drag queen. That's how I yeah. thought of myself. Um, yeah. So it was interesting. And I was like, I will happily write emails to all these students, whatever. Right. Like, to I explain mean, like, history. To explain I, history. I mean, this was a political tactic. Yeah. To do, it's like reclamation, right? It's like reclaiming like words that are used against us. I mean, yeah. what, you mean it's like, it is like queer resistance 101, basically. Totally. And I don't want to be like an older person who's like raising my fist at like the youth being like, you just don't understand. Like, that's not useful. But like, it was a strange moment for me um, to like have that that weird call out and be like, yeah, um, that is weird. But it, I had I had a lot of fun and it changed me as a writer. It made me mm-hmm. take myself seriously. Yeah. Um, you are a sober. You're a sober person who talks about being a sober person. I am. How? I mean, when I was a drunk person, I was a drunk person who talked about being a drunk person. So I feel like I have to sort of even that out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How would you talk about being a drunk person? What would you say? I was, I'd was. just be like, I got so drunk and I did this crazy thing. And then I wrote like a book called Valencia, which is basically me just being drunk and having sex in bathrooms while I'm wasted. You know what yeah. I mean? So I felt like I needed to sort of be like, okay, well, now I'm doing this other thing, world. <laughs> um, It's... I mean, it's interesting in Black Wave, which I talked about earlier, um, the thing that spoke to me, and I don't, I haven't reread it, and I, like, wonder how much of this is me conflating something you wrote with something that I was struggling with at the time, but the the protagonist in Black Wave, I remember one, like, two-sentence, like, little part, maybe it was longer, but in my memory it was short, but it was about, like, identifying using alcohol or drugs as being outside and being an outsider and part of that is being tied to like queer identity yeah and at the time that I was starting to stop drinking one of the main things that was really hard for me to let go of was how it marked me as resisting heteronormative capitalistic daytime lifestyle totally I really related to I relate to that because I felt like the way that I drank 
like was um you know i i read like the Bates and bukowski like everybody else even though i like to make fun of all those fools and like hunter thompson and and you know i admired their freedom and their recklessness was very romantic to me and there's not very many female writers you know like jim carroll and the basketball diaries like there's not a lot of female writers who sort of stake that territory so um it felt like a feminist act to sort of not only like live like that and like do drugs and drink heavily but like to sort of brag about it like these guys had you know like they had made it their their um their subject matter you know in a way and they certainly weren't condemned for it nobody was worried about them you know what i mean nobody was like ooh jack kerouac i hope he's okay you know it's all like oh jack kerouac you know and so i it felt yeah it definitely felt like um taking up like a like a cause to, to, to do that. But it's ultimately so self-destructive. I mean, it's unsustainable. I mean, even like Jack Kerouac died in a sad alcoholic death and, you know, his writing ultimately suffered for it. And that's basically everyone's story, except weirdly Bukowski. I mean, he probably did die an alcoholic death, but like, I don't know, he just kept going. There's always exceptions, you know. But um, yeah, it was shocking to me when I first got sober to realize how much drinking was part of my identity. You know, and then it very swiftly felt embarrassing that that mm. was so, you know. Um, did it yeah. change your relationship to the nightlife? It did. I didn't want it to. You know, initially I was like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking and then, but like everything's going to stay the same, right? Like I'm just not going to drink, but my life isn't going to change. But it's impossible, you know? It's like I couldn't, I mean, now I can go hang out with people who are like, doing cocaine all night. I think it's actually really fun. <laughs> you know, I've already had this one uh, pride, like, I don't know when it was, probably like 15 years ago at this point, but I was sober and I was hanging out with all these kind of younger people who were like so messy and they were on so much cocaine and they just got to the point where they just were like, it's so cool that you can hang out and like not do cocaine. And I was just like, it is cool. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but it for, but there was a moment where like it didn't feel good. It felt it gave me anxiety. I mean, because so much is happening. You're detoxing. You're like, who knew what my underlying like mental health issues were? I'd been fucking drinking and doing drugs for like a, you know a very long time, and so I had to figure out like, you know, do I need meds? As it turns out, yes. You know, and all this other stuff. So it, at first, you know, there were there were points where it it didn't work for me. Sometimes, you know, my eyes are really bad. Sometimes I would go dancing and not wear my glasses. And it did the trick of, first of all, nobody recognized me. So, like, people that I hung out with, like, just, they didn't see my big glasses on my face that I wore all the time back then. They didn't recognize me. No one talked to me. Everything was sort of blurry. It was like I was drunk. I was, like, anonymous, sort of, like, blurry, and, and I would dance, and I liked that. But then, ultimately, you just, you learn to do everything all over again. Like, it's no big deal to sing karaoke sober or dance or have sex, you know? It's ultimately funner you know because the thing about if you really are an alcoholic or a drug addict it stops being fun you know so it's not like it's not like you're like people are like oh you're such a killjoy and you're like no i was like calling in sick because i couldn't stop sobbing like <laughs> you know like that's a problem i remember i was hanging out with some younger people who were totally like wild artists they were just definitely like being crazy and you know doing lots of drugs and because i was like you know, on record as a sober person, there was like a little gap between us. Like I could tell they wouldn't tell me that they were doing, I didn't care if they were doing drugs. I knew they were, but so there's like this kind of weirdness. And I remember one of them said like, I'm a hedonist. I'm just a hedonist. And I remember thinking like, Oh, that sounds so cool. I, I wish I was still a hedonist. And then I was like, wait, a hedonist is just a pleasure seeker. I am still a hedonist. Like if I was getting a shit ton of pleasure off of like doing crystal meth for three days, I'd still be doing crystal meth for three days. But in fact, it's grisly and terrifying and, and, and it sucks all pleasure from your body and actually like fucks with your pleasure receptors. So I was happy to be reminded by mm. some young drug addled artists that I am still a hedonist. <laughs> that... Reminds me of something I heard on your podcast, your podcast, Your Magic, mm -hmm. where you were talking about, I don't remember the exact quote, but you were talking about spirituality and talking about like in recovery, the recovery that you've done, how like you had to let go of like the, your God being alcohol and replace it with a different higher power, a different God. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, my personal, like I stopped drinking as we were purchasing the stud. Mm -hmm. um, I like had several 
periods of like nights like throughout the years of drinking again for a night and and currently I'm like just not drinking mm -hmm. and um I haven't done recovery um I've just been white knuckling it <laughs> and also working <laughs> in the nightlife serving drinks while it's happening while Trump was getting elected so this was like <sighs> I was like, you know what? I have to prove to myself that I can continue this because I stopped drinking November 1st and then Trump was elected November whatever, 12th or whatever. And so I did that. Um, but for me, when you, hearing you on that podcast say replace the God of alcohol, for me, the nightlife and drag has always been so deeply spiritual mm -hmm. and also frivolous and fun and all everything. But it's also been like had like a really spiritual depth. Um, it was where I found identity and community and everything um but always felt like 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 kissing heaven you know like mm -hmm. like somehow transcendent and for me in my journey instead of like replacing the god of alcohol with like doing that I, it was more that i had to like uh separate i had forgotten that it was the nightlife and creativity that i thought was divine from right. alcohol which had replaced it over time that makes so much sense and it was, and the reckoning of that, of like, has been just now kind of resolving itself like four years later, where I, for a while, was like mad at the nightlife, right? I was like, the nightlife made me drink. The nightlife was a bad thing for me. I was a mess for 10 years and the nightlife, you know? And, and then I was working at the stud two months sober, pouring drinks for people and watching them get go through all of the things you do yeah. at the club. So it was yeah. really hard to get through. And it was just recently that I was like, no, the nightlife was beautiful. And alcohol started out as a useful tool. Yep. And it's easy to understand how it got conflated because I mean, I always have said like alcohol is called spirits and like yeah. how it's conflated with this like, like divine experience. Um, yeah. It, I love that I can go like now. What's funny is that, I mean, I, I don't necessarily always want to have a lot of nightlife. Um, and I feel like, I think in sobriety, I've almost felt a pressure of like, you gotta go out. I remember when we brought um, Justin Vivian Bond on tour, on Sister Spit, and I was on that tour, I remember her saying at some point, like, I've retired from nightlife. And it was like so, I was like, yeah. I've retired from nightlife, you know, <laughs> but I feel like it comes and goes like, honestly, right before, uh, the pandemic kind of shut down. Um, I was married, I'm now divorced, but my, my spouse at the time was like going out all the time. Um, and had just suddenly become like a club kid before my eyes. I was like, what, what's going on? And I was like, kind of jealous, you know? And I was like, Oh, it actually looks so fun now. And like, we were just about to figure out how, like, to, to divvy up the nightlife nights a little. What's hard is that, like, you know, my they've just became friends with all these young people who drink, but my friends are all, like, elderly poets, and nobody wanted to go out dancing with me, you know? But um, I, I was kind of figuring it out. I was making some connections. I was going to go hit the dance floor again. And then COVID happened. Yeah. It was so sad. I'm like, ruiner will we ever... Will we... Ruiner of plans. Will we ever dance in a nightclub all sweaty next to oh, each other again? Oh, we will. We'll just okay. be a few more years older than we are now. That's fine. Look you at Yoko Ono. Yeah. <laughs> Work. <laughs> uh, um, well, but speaking of your pod, your yeah. podcast, um, your magic. Um, it's great. Been listening. Love Thank it. Thank you. I'm so glad. New listener, new subscriber. <laughs> um, on your pod, you do a tarot reading for your guest. Oh, my God. Yeah. I didn't even think about offering you a tarot reading <gasps> from me to you on this pod. Oh my goodness, what deck do you use? Well, the deck I'm house-sitting in, the deck I have with me here is my bar deck, which is the giant rider weight. But otherwise, I use Your the... Your bar deck? Because, like, you read cards at, at bars with them? Well, at the... Um, at the stud, Shabana Lovelot was doing a night called... Uh, oh, I can't... Night... God, I love her. She's such a wild, beautiful creature, lovely. Yeah. Um, was doing a goth night and I was the bartender for it. It was a Sunday night. And I was like, I'm just going to put up a sign that says tarot readings, whatever, however much <laughs> money you want to give me. And some nights I would make like, like a hundred bucks. Yeah. Cause people um, are drunk and they're like, no, wait, I gotta know. Drunk. I gotta know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I like, that's why I got the big deck. I was like, you drunk people. It's dark in here. You got to see this picture. You're a genius. You're but a genius. I also, thanks. I also use Albano white, which is like the writer weight, but it's, 
been painted different. It's a different color scheme. Oh, like that's it's interesting. It's prettier to me. And then I use the Thoth deck, the, the cool, the the one you use. On yeah, I do use show. that one. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. I'm just curious, like, what you think of like how you called it, like, contemporary mysticism fits in. Like to me, it makes perfect sense that someone would be reading tarot cards at a queer bar. Yeah. And I'm yeah. just curious your take. What's your hot take? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it, it. Well, where else do you get it? You know what I mean? It's like it's like funny. It's like where where do we ply our trade as tarot readers? You know, like I guess you could have a storefront like storefront psychics have, but they have such a terrible reputation. Um, and now, of course, there's like the interwebs and whatever. Everybody can advertise the way that they do. But I remember, you know, I used to do tarot readings at the Lexington Club. Oh. Yeah. And, um, and it was great. I mean, people, it's where my community was. It's where like my customer base was, I suppose, you know, yeah. and it's where a lot of drama happens it's where like a lot of, you know, people go to the bar and either drama erupts in their face or they are there to meet up with their friends and everyone's talking about what's going on in their lives and everybody has problems, you know, as we all do always. And how great that there's just somebody to give you some insight sitting right there. You yeah. Know? It's great. Yeah. It's really great. I um, before the pandemic, I read tarot cards for one night at um, Dagoth at Akbar here in Los Angeles. It was really fun. I really That's loved cute. it. And I forgot how like yeah, the night goes on and people get a little drunker and they come over and people are suddenly someone's crying about their boyfriend doesn't really love them and <laughs> you know. you and you're like it's true he doesn't <laughs> he's bad um, news. Our producer Tara had a good question, which is. Have you ever gotten feedback later about a tarot reading you've given that was either like, thank you so much, you changed my life, or like, how dare you, that was wrong? Both. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, oh, I've definitely had people be like, that tarot reading, thank you so much, like, everything changed after that, or, you know, whatever. Um, You know, tarot readings are generally like... They're just sort of snapshots of the moment. They're validation. They're like a good therapy session. So usually it's like, you know, those people who are like everything changed after that. It's like they were on the precipice of change. They just needed that little bit of illumination to be like, yeah, you know, you definitely should do that. And then I have had people who are like, that terror reading made no sense. <laughs> and I'm just like, sorry, can't can't win them all, you know. But right. um, or like I I know I gave a. I gave a tarot reading to somebody who's, like, sort of famous, and it was, like, this very, like, oh, yeah, I don't know this person you're dating is, like, no. Like, the answer is no to this person. And they were, like, a little obviously taken aback because they're in love with this person. They didn't want to hear that. And now they're, like, married and having their baby. So clearly I was wrong, you know. Or there's just, like, a pee under the mattress. You know what I mean? That this is, like, something's not right. Yeah. Just powering through it. I don't know. Yeah. it, it came up as a thought because on one of your episodes, you talk, you advise someone to definitely move to Joshua Tree. Yes. And, and so it was just the like, what if they move and they have an awful time? You know, because you speak with such certainty. I know. As a reader, which is really exciting. Right. And I, but I do think that like, it's shocking to me sometimes. I'm like, oh, someone like, you know, I'll, I'll read someone's cards and they'll be like, okay. And I'm like, I just told this person to do this thing. That's yeah. like a big deal. And now they might do it. Am I responsible? You know, but it's like, I'm just reading the cards. Like a lot of times I have the experience of the cards giving advice that like I, Michelle T would not give, you know, like right. a lot of times I, I often have to restrain myself. I mean, especially um, earlier in pandemic, I was doing these nightly like Tarot Tuesdays on Instagram live where people were just send me questions and they, it was so fun. It was like crazy questions, crazy problems. And I'd read someone's problem. I'd be like, oh my God, like, obviously I want to tell you like break up with this person right now. Like, I don't even want, there was one instance where there was actually like abuse involved and I was like, I'm actually not picking cards on this because like, you like no like just yeah just don't be in this relationship but um other ones that are just like kind of more complicated i was like i want to tell you to like get the fuck out of this situation but the tarot is telling you to stay in it so you know and then you realize through situations like that like our destiny isn't to be happy like the point of life is not to be happy i mean we we like being happy we want to be happy right like the way that like an addict wants to be high like we want to be feeling good you know but that's not necessarily what's best for our spiritual growth or what is um destined for us you know and i think anybody can look at a million times in their past where something terrible happened and then something great happened as a result or they learned something 
or they're certainly who they are because of it, you know? And I don't understand why it has to be like that. And in general, you know, I counsel people away from the hard road when possible, but sometimes it's the hard road. Has it ever happened where you like pull all the cards and you're just like, you're asking the wrong question? The short answer is yes. And so what I now do as a tarot reader is um, when I see someone, I just give them a Celtic cross reading and we don't talk about what it's about. It's going to be about what the tarot wants them to know about. Because too often someone's like, I want to talk about work. I'm like, yeah, but the tarot wants you to talk about your relationship, you know? So it's like, we're just going to see what comes up. And then from there, we can pick cards on specific things. So like you do still get to address whatever brought you to the reading, of course, you know, but that first, like, let's just see what, I don't know, the tarot, the spirit, the universe wants you to know about, because yeah, people don't always, I don't know, I don't know what it is, you know, it's like, sometimes you just need to know what the spirit wants you to know about. Uh, another question before we get to some mysticism is in your podcast, you talk about how like contemporary mysticism is like very much on the rise and like mm -hmm. coming up a lot. Where do you think, why, why do you think that's happening now? And where do you think it comes from? I mean, I think that I've, I, I mean, speaking for myself, like I feel kind of wired to be sort of devotional in this way. Like I feel like there is a, you know, like I want to worship something, right? I have a devotional, drive inside of myself that I guess is spiritual, what you would call spiritual. And I think a lot of people are like that. And I think that maybe during another time period, um, that was satisfied by like traditional religions, but like, that's just not the world that we live in. I mean, I think, you know, we live in a world where we've seen traditional religions be so, you know, destructive. I mean, it's always been destructive, but now it's like, you can't look away from the evidence of that. Um, and I just feel like we live in a place where like, queer people are like, no, like, you can't tell me that I can't be gay, you know? And, like, people are co of color are just like, actually, this is, like, colonial bullshit. This isn't my spirituality. Like, I have, like, my people have their own spirituality. And feminists are just like, what? <laughs> like, why would I worship some dude and be part of this cult that doesn't let me have power, you know? So it's just, it feels inevitable. It's almost like what took it so long, but I think it's been hastened by just the passage of time and the gaining of rights for marginalized people and certainly the internet being able to spread information and um, give people access. So it's like you don't necessarily have to go into your one weird, small town, dusty, you know, occult bookshop. You know, you can go on the internet and you can see, you know, people who you relate to who are pr having these practices and um, opening up different methods for like spiritual expression for you. It's really fun. I mean, I love a dusty small town occult bookshop. Don't get me wrong. But I also know that like, you know, maybe you're not a 50 year old like pagan who wears velvet robes and has 17 cats. And like, maybe that's just like not your identity and you want a spirituality that looks more like you, you know? And also aesthetics are important. And they've always been important in spirituality. I mean, look at a goddamn Catholic church. It's like red velvet and up the wazoo. I mean, aesthetics are a conduit to a mystical experience. You know, beauty is mystical. And so I feel like, um, yeah, seeing seeing like pretty crystals arranged in a grid <laughs> can be transportive for people, you know? For sure. Yeah. Have you noticed this weird um, spectrum spectrum crossover of new ageiness combined with anti-masking and anti-vaxxing have you have you noticed this i mean it's been brought to my attention by okay. people who are like super alarmed by it it's like yeah. i don't personally follow anti-max masker queuing on people so i missed it until it was like oh hey there's like some i don't know wellness influencer who i guess is like a total bonkers super like militia right-wing republican or something it's strange but then there's always been like i don't know i guess there's been like it makes me think of like intense christians who've also been like wheat bread you know what i mean like, yeah <laughs> dr or, bronner's ezekiel yeah, bread yeah ezekiel bread right it's like in the it's like so i don't know i guess there's always been a sort of lifestyle component to some religions and you know these wellness practices are 
legitimately good for our bodies. So if you believe your body is, you know, a temple made by like the white Christian God, I guess it behooves the white Christian God for you to <laughs> stop eating gluten. I don't know, you know, or eat Ezekiel gluten only. But <laughs> so it's like, it's weird for sure. It, it feels like it's the latest iteration of that. Yeah. And it's bigger, I think, because the internet is like a, it, it, the internet, it just kind of like p- turns the volume up on everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, will you tell us a little bit about, we asked you to maybe talk about the studs chart briefly. Yes. You know, I'm much more of a hobbyist than a professional when it comes to astrology, but it is part of my practice to, to learn about astrology and use astrology. And I use it a lot in tarot actually. So I was looking at, um, the studs original birthday, which was in May, May 25th, 1966. I believe so. Yeah. That's what I have written down. Um, so it's a Gemini, like San Francisco. Originally, its original incarnation was a Gemini, which is San Francisco's a Gemini as well. So it makes sense that it that it was supported, in a sense, by the city for so long, by this sort of very Gemini, dur- during the city's very Gemini heyday, right, which was just like uh, wildness and that Mercury, like all ideas, all expressions, total freedom, you know, total liberation, and its moon was in Leo. So it makes sense that performance was baked into it, that it wasn't just a place that you got drunk and maybe danced, but that there was always performance. And I mean, Gemini and Leo, like they are the most flamboyant, two most flamboyant signs in the Zodiac. So it makes sense that it was a place for drag. And, you know, and Gemini also is like the twins, you know, like, I feel like there's like, it's like divine androgyny is very much like a Gemini thing as well. So it makes sense that it was always a place for like, you know, playing with gender. Um, Let me see. It had, um, on the day that it opened, Mars was in Taurus, sextiling um, Saturn in Pisces, which is said to be very strong. I mean, Mars is the planet of, like, energy and moving forward. It's the heavy lifter. It's the engine. And Taurus is really grounded. Taurus is like, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do all the heavy lifting. And Saturn is like, I mean, you know, you're a Capricorn. You're ruled by Saturn. It's the taskmaster. So having it in Pisces is quite interesting. It's sort of like, what's your responsibility to your dreams? What's the responsibility to fantasy? Um, So that's really interesting. Now, the next day, the 26th, is still technically opening night for the stud, right? Because it's nightlife. So at 12, 12 a.m. on the 26th, which is just like the first 12, 12 of the stud's existence, (laughs) the moon in in Leo squared Neptune and Scorpio. And that is very, it's about fantasy and illusion. It's very psychic. It's also very mentally ill. It's about denial. It's like... The good parts of it are just sort of like, oh my God, I'm just like smoking opium and having the best sex of my life. And this is just, I'm going to write an epic poem about it and it will go down in history. And the bad part is like, I'm smoking crack in the bathroom with a trick whose name I can't remember, you know? So it's all of those things, the good and the bad of all, just like inebriation, divine intoxication or not so divine intoxication. So it was definitely a place for that. I'm really interested though in the new iteration, it's, it's new birthday, which is January of 2017, yes? Um, yes. So I love this. At midnight, this. 12 a.m., was when we when the collective started working and purchasing the stud. I love it. It's great. It's a Capricorn, which, as you know, business. And this is important because I think that maybe when the stud... I mean, the stud's always been in business, of course. We've always been in capitalism. But when the stud opened, San Francisco was a different kind of San Francisco. And it makes sense that it could have been opened in more of a Gemini spirit of like, this is going to be a place, a crazy place for queers to express themselves and be free. And we're going to have parties. And But now it's sort of like, okay, actually the city is like a monster and we need a business sense. We need a fucking plan, you know? And it's like, it needs that Capricorn. It needs that Capricorn energy. Um, and its moon is an Aquarius. So it still has that freaky deaky sort of like, you know, it doesn't have the Gemini necessarily, but it has Aquarius, which is like another iteration of that same energy that's perhaps a little wiser, you know, like a little older, a little wizened, you know, it's like a wizened Gemini energy, still super freaky and very, very dedicated. Whereas Gemini would maybe be like, I'm doing this wild fucking thing and I don't care if it pisses off the community. It's wild and we're doing it. Whereas Aquarius is like, yes, let's be wild, but let's be let's be wild for the community. 
like let's bring the community in and all find a way to be wild together so it's more community oriented it's less of a wild card um less of a cowboy um so some cool things that happened on the day that it was reborn was the moon in Aquarius was sextile Uranus and Aries, which is weird, 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 weird. So it's very much like, don't worry, Gemini and Leo might be gone, but this is still a, a hot bit of fucking freak, <laughs> freakiness, you know? Um, the moon in the moon in, in Aquarius sextiling Uranus is great because Uranus rules Aquarius. It's Uranus is the the planet of wild new changes, you know, and rising to the occasion of change that is sometimes shocking and unwelcome, but for the best. So. And in Aries, it's like, let's go. Let's shake shit up. Let's do it. Um, it has a lot of a focus. It has a lot of ambition. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a genius sort of sextile. And it's about new way, finding out new ways to create and new ways to be a community. So it's really beautiful. There's also another really cool aspect that happened that day. It, the moon in Aquarius was trying uh, Jupiter in Libra. So Jupiter brings gifts. Jupiter is like, oh, you guys want to have a, a, a club? Let's have like a big crazy club. You want to be a co-op? Let's have a giant fun co-op. Like it's very much like the party planet, you know? And it being in Libra is lovely because Libra is a social butterfly. Like Libra is out and about, you know? And again, you have that air. Like it just seems like having that air energy is really important to the stud. So this is a, an aspect that's really lucky. Um, it's actually good for finances and stuff like that. It's actually good for material success. It's very devoted. It's very like, you know, Libra is about partnership and marriage. So there's this sort of like um, pledging of a pledge of love. You know, it's very community oriented um, and it's very social. It's very like popular and social. So you guys have some really good stuff. And it's not like I'm leaving out terrible aspects like right. <laughs> there just isn't any um there's like a couple of other really cool ones there was like the moon um in aquarius was also sextiling um something in sagittarius i took really poor notes i see <laughs> <laughs> something in sagittarius but um which also get brings a lot of like um response like i'm gonna be responsible it's goal oriented it's like i'm gonna like stick by this and wow. it's also conjunct Venus in Aquarius. So that's really great. So that's two planets in a, so you're so Venus is in Aquarius. And that's wonderful because Venus in Aquarius is like super polyamorous, super like let's think about love. Let's think about relationships. Like let's be weird. Like let's be super like not heteronormative, you know? That's um, where my Venus is and that's why I'm laughing. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. It's probably tricky place for a Venus. I mean, I don't I know. Mean, my Venus, my Venus is in Capricorn, which is no fucking easy. Whoa! <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> I mean, when anyone has anything in Capricorn that's not like sun or rising, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I know. I have a new boyfriend, and he has his moon is in Capricorn. I have a dear friend who's Pisces sun and moon Capricorn, and I was like, whoa, no, like yeah. It's in, it's intense, but it's great. I mean, I, I think it's actually really great. It's like, whoa, this is a solid ass person. It's like, yeah. it's almost like good for other people. It's like you can rely on this person, you know, but it's hard for them because yeah. they're like, they're like, I just was driving to work today just thinking about how everyone I love is going to die. It's like, <laughs> I'm so sorry <laughs> that your moon is in Capricorn. I mean, we everyone is going to die. I don't know what to say. Like, sorry. Sorry Saturn was fucking with you like that. Uh, I interrupted you. We were talking about Venus, Venus Aquarius, Venus. Yes, Aquarius. yes. The 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 new stud has its Venus in Aquarius. And polyamory the, all the yeah, way. Yeah, on the day it was born, and then in Aquarius, uh, Moon in Aquarius as well. So it means that um, that's really nice because the Moon is how we feel safe, right? So if your Moon's in Aquarius, it actually makes you feel safe to have a ton of freedom and to be doing things radical in a radical way, you know? So wanting to do that in your relationships is going to actually make you feel really safe and good. Whereas like, you know, if you had your moon in Capricorn and your Venus in Aquarius, maybe that's hard, right? Cause you're like, actually, I want to, I want to get married right now. I want to do a lot of paperwork, you know, and like get this, on the books, get this relationship on the books, but Venus is meanwhile like, and then I kind of want to go and have sex with five other people. Yeah. <laughs> and not, but like, let's not call ourselves married. Let's get married, but not call ourselves married. You know, it's like, some, it's like a lot of friction, it seems like to me. So, but that's not the case. The case with the stud is you're a freak through and through, freak to the bone. 
Freak in the sheets and the streets. So Thank it's... you so much for that. That yeah. casual casual reading. <laughs> it's really fun for me. I love looking at stuff like this. So it's so interesting. Okay. So Michelle. Yeah. As you know, the stud had to leave our location May 31st last year. Um, our, our previous location at 399 9th Street. And I have I have a particular spot in mind that I would love us to move to. Many people are like, how's the stud doing? Are you guys closed forever? And we are not closed forever. No way. We're selling merch. We have this podcast. We have Patreon. We have we have Drag Alive. We are actually doing really, like, we're doing well right now because we're not paying $13,000 a month in rent. But I have, in my fantasy mind, a dream spot for us that I will not disclose. But I'm just curious, what do you think? Of, what, I want to ask the cards. I want to ask you. What's the dream spot? My dream spot in my mind. How is that for the stuff? What's it look like? Okay. Yeah. All right. It's gonna give it. I've been shuffling throughout you talking, and I'm Thank gonna give one one more shuffle, and then I'm gonna pick three cards. I'll send my zhuzh to you through the zhuzh it up, and then I'm using the Toth deck like I do. Looks good. Um, it looks like the people are good. Like whoever your landlords there would be that you'd be working with are probably good. You got the Princess of Cups. She's like, you know, when when I, I, I see these, you know, sometimes with the, I mean, they, they tell stories, the cards, of course, but then they're also, I feel like, have like a positive or a negative charge, a lot of them, you know, and you've gotten three cards that have strong positive charges. So the Princess of Cups is like open hearted. She's like, um, there's something, she's very much like not jealous. I don't know how that plays into this story, but that's like a big part of her. She's like very open hearted and I mean, community oriented really. And like is making an offering. So she's very much about like how, you know, maybe like, you know, you guys are making an offering of the stud to the community. This, this location could be offering itself to the stud. And then I love this. You have the princess of discs. Okay. So another princess, more, more of this princess energy. And this is grounded because it's discs, it's earth, right? So we want to see something like this when we're picking cards on like housing, basically. And I love her story. Um, you know, behind this princess, there's this tangle of, of woods and it's like she's come through this hard time she's had a real path she's had to make it through this tangle of woods like much as you guys have having to figure out like what to do to save the stud um and now she's pregnant and it's like you guys are pregnant basically it's like you're gonna have a new baby stud uh-huh and it's like this That's is great. like a, it's really great it's a rebirth right it's about birth so it's like well, yeah and also like the idea of gestation like we're yeah. we're like we're waiting we're like we're growing the new thing yeah. It's not there yet, of course, because we're still growing it. Yeah. And then your final card is the Six of Swords. And I just love this so much because, you know, it's it's a six. Sixes in the tarot are yeah, big yeses, the sphere of beauty and perfection. It's swords, which is air, which is like, you know, again, even though the new stud is a Capricorn, it's got all that Aquarius. It's like it's so it's so airy. Um, and this is a Mercury in Aquarius. So it's like, yes, you will be able, and Mercury is about communication. And that's what the stud does. It communicates culture, you know, and it's a place for other, for people to come and communicate to each other and communicate our culture to each other. And so it's like, yeah, you will be able to transmit your weird ass, freaky Aquarius, you know, vibes and communications again. And cool. also this is about making smart decisions. So it's also saying there's another layer to this saying like good job with thinking about that place. It makes sense. It's smart, you know. Perfect. So especially, you know, the, the suit of swords in the tarot is so tormented. So to get to get a good <laughs> yeah. to get a good swords card is a big deal. It's like, yes, you've actually used your mind not to just freak out and make everything worse, but to actually come up with a really great logical plan that makes a lot of sense. Okay, that's super great for this location. And just it in is. general for the stud's future. Yeah, I love it. Um, will you tell us about your new pod or where to find it, where to find you on the internet? Yeah, the podcast is called Your Magic and it is a Spotify exclusive. So you can find it on Spotify and uh, new episodes drop every Monday. And also, if you like this kind of stuff, and I bet you do if you're listening to this podcast, you should go to Your Magic's website, which is thisisyourmagic.com, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. We don't, you know, sell your address or torment you with spam. We send out one, like, very cool, high-quality newsletter a week with, like, playlists and interviews with cool people. Like, this week, I think we had Beth Ditto, an interview with Beth Ditto about being a Pisces. Like, it's really fun stuff. Um, so, yeah, you can do that. And you can follow This Is Your Magic on Instagram at This Is Your Magic. And you can follow me on Instagram at Michelle Tease, T-E-A-Z. 
Excellent. Thank yeah. you so much for being our guest today. Oh, this was so much fun. It's so great to see you guys and talk about something I love so much. Would you be into coming on our Drag Alive show and reading our audience one day? <laughs> I'll read your audience, yeah. Work. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Michelle. Too. You're very welcome. Bye, you guys. Woo-wee! Thank you, Michelle T, for your magic, your tarot, your astrology, and also your stories about being a young and reckless queer. It's very exciting to hear for me and hopefully all of you out there. If you love the stud and you want even more stud in your life, you should check out Drag Alive, which is going to be on April 10th on twitch.tv slash studsf. That's twitch.tv slash stud sf. Michelle T will be appearing on Drag Alive and will be giving a live tarot reading to our audience. And you want even more stud, you say? Well, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash the stud. Our Patreon supporters get early access to our podcast, as well as special drops such as DJ sets by some of our fave DJs, and also recordings of playlists from the Stud Vault. Stud Vault is really boxes and boxes of records we found under the stage at the Stud when we were moving out, many of them dating back to the early 80s and 70s. And our owner, John fucking Cartwright, makes playlists out of them and broadcasts them on Twitch. And sometimes we drop some of those recordings to our Patreons. You should check it out. It's really, really fierce. And if you want to show your Stud pride, go to studsf.com. That's studsf.com. We have new merch coming out all of the time, as well as our classic stud logo tees and sweatshirts. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood. Music is by Paige Turner. I am Vivian Forevermore, also known as Micah Sigourney, producer, writer, and host. I look forward to speaking with you again. Happy spring. Stay safe. And stay studly. Bye.